Good morning. Um, so here's the deal. I, I wanted to open a certain way in the last service, and I didn't, and I feel like somehow I quenched the spirit. So y'all are getting an 11 o'clock special. The first service did not get. I usually don't use sports metaphors in sermons. It seems inelegant somehow. There's no way to make it poetic or theological or something, but I need to talk about the NBA Finals. I need, this is for me, if not for you, I need to talk about the NBA Finals. Um, I'm a big basketball person, and in my opinion, the NBA Finals thus far, I mean, I just, I don't want it to end. It is bliss. It is basketball nirvana. I know you would love to see the thunder there, and I would have. Is, is anybody else watching this series? Am I the only person watching the finals? Anyone? Don't, for the rest of you, I'll bring you up to speed, okay? So Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers in the finals. And um, it's a great, great matchup. You've got, I mean, for the Warriors, you know, Steph Curry this year was the league MVP, literally the best pure shooter in the history of basketball, better than Ray Allen, better than any shooter that we've ever seen. My minor claim to fame, by the way, true story, is I was Steph Curry's youth pastor for two years. He was in my youth group. And uh, actually, it was a big youth group, didn't interact with, with him a lot, but for the sake of preaching purposes, I basically fathered him. And... <laughs> And, and, and made him the man that he is today. So please tell people this. And, um, but he was in my youth group. That part's true. And craziest thing, can still see him on the back row of the room, you know, and just, it's weird. Anyway, uh, but it's amazing. So he's this great shooter. He's the MVP this season. And the Cavs going into the playoffs, you know, people are always kind of polarized by LeBron James, but I just, I don't know. It's like, it was, it was really sad for me. Their star power forward, Kevin Love, got injured in the first round of the playoffs, so he's out, you know, like four to six month recovery time. And then the first game against the Warriors, which was amazing, by the way. The first two games went to overtime. That's never happened in the history of the finals. You can see I'm very excited about this. Uh, I know, and some of you are like, what are you doing right now? I told you, I just want to talk about the NBA finals. Um, so they go into overtime the first two games. is great. But towards the end of the first game, the Cavs star point guard, because they're kind of built around three players, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love. Kyrie Irving goes down. Turns out he basically blew out his kneecap. He's also out for the rest of the series. So now two of their three stars are gone. And so everybody, the verdict, of course, is absolutely the Warriors are going to kill them because they've been the best team in the league in the regular season. Not, not only are they playing the Cavs without Kevin Love, but without Kyrie Irving, they're hobbled. No way possible they can win. And what's happened in these first couple games has just been extraordinary. For one, LeBron James has just put forth a Herculean effort. 141 points in the first three games. That's insane. I mean, he just put the team on his shoulders, had this in, in, these incredible performances. It's just been awesome. But the great story, and I'm not just saying this. I think this is one of the, the best stories in like modern sports. Like I can't think of an equivalent in recent years. The Cavs have a backup point guard named Matthew Deladova. Am I saying that right, Deladova? Anyway, un, it would make sense if I didn't for context of the story. Undrafted in 2013, guy from Australia, fairly small by NBA standards, kind of a, kind of a stocky white guy who just, I don't know if you see him, like he doesn't, he just doesn't look like he should be playing professional basketball. Like someone like LeBron James is like sculpted, like he is a physical specimen. You just see this guy and he looks like an extra for a Mad Max movie. Like that's the kind of Aussie that he is and like doesn't look like he belongs in a basketball game. So with Kyrie Irving out, they start him. Um, typically during the season, he was playing 10 or 15 minutes a night off the bench. Okay, kind of an average backup point guard. 
and he's just gone bananas. Like defensively, he's shut Steph down, uh, Steph Curry down almost entirely those first couple games. It was outrageous. Diving for loose balls, like seemed to grab like every conceivable. I mean, you just see him on the floor all the time. It's just been outrageous effort from this guy who no one has ever heard of after the Cavs get already like counted out. And one of my favorite things about the series is the games that have been in Cleveland, like the, the crowd will just start spontaneously over here. They'll start ch- chanting, Delhi, Delhi, Delhi. And it's just so cool that this little point guard who came off the bench, I cannot even believe how poorly this is going over right now. I just, <laughs> for those of you listening via audio, it really like no one is interested in what's happening right now. I have a point, people. There's method to my madness. It's just, it's the kind of story we all love, right? Is this, the undrafted guy who comes off the bench is considered a marginal player at best, like becomes a superstar in the NBA playoffs. No one saw this coming. Everybody thinks it's so awesome. I think it's awesome. It's a great sports story. Today, we're going to 2 Samuel 15, and this is the ancient equivalent. See what I did right there? It's, uh, (laughs) thank you. I just needed to talk about the finals. I'm sorry. <laughs> the vibe in the room of please get to the sermon for the love of God. I will. Second Samuel chapter 15. And this is this whole narrative kind of towards the end of uh, Saul's kingship, at least in any viable form. You know, the, the spiral, the descent has become, and this is all the part that sets up for, for David becoming king. So beginning with um, verse 34 there in chapter 15, then Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him. And I have rejected him and I will uh, from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. Let's stop right there for right now. So uh, just all cards on the table. The Saul narrative in Samuel has always been an uncomfortable one for me. And I'm not saying this. It's like because I feel like the text just has a way of emphasizing over and over again that Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone else. You know, Saul, the tall king. And kind of when you put this together that we're a few chapters away from Goliath, there really is what I see as being a very unhealthy bias towards large people. And I just get, I, I get super insecure. I was, I was 6'2 when I was in the, like the sixth grade and already. And I just kind of like, I always felt like it just feels very unfair that all the like giant people in First and Second Samuel are the bad guys. You know what I'm saying? So... I just want to point out that there are gentle giants and that we're not all bad. And just think about it. In your own life and experience, you know some wonderful short people, but some of the most terrible human beings that you know are also very, very small as well. So it doesn't always work out like this. I'm just saying. It's not automatic that just because you're big that you are this terribly depraved person. But, you know, we get that a lot about Saul. And I think the idea, and I know there's that language about the Lord rejecting Saul, but I think the idea consistently is Saul is the people's choice over and against God's when they're wanting a a king that will look impressive and imposing. Saul just physically fit the part of the king, and so that's the role he gets cast in. And people want that more than they want uh, someone that's, that's defined by love, mercy, and goodness. So 
that time is coming to an end. Samuel, who's the prophet, who's been such a big part of Saul's life, is grieving this. And the Lord says, there, there's a time and there's a space for grieving. But, but Samuel, how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to continue to weep about what's already passed away? I want to anoint a new king. So, they, so the Lord sends Samuel out to Jesse in search to find this person. So going back to the text now. Samuel said, how can I go? How can I go find a new king? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? The prophet's coming to town. Everybody's freaked out when the prophet comes because what have we done wrong? It's kind of like being called to the principal's office. Like, why is he here? Uh, but Samuel does come in peace. He says, I come peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And so he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, so now you know he's got Jesse's sons all lined up in front of him. He looked on Eliab, the first, the eldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. And it's, this is, uh, I love this because even Samuel as the prophet. He knows that Saul was the people's pick, but not really God's. And that they picked him largely because he physically looked the part. And yet when he sees Eliab, the eldest son, who also is physically imposing and impressive, first thing you know, he's, you know even the prophet says he looks presidential. He's, he's got to be the right guy. But the Lord responds to Samuel here and says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Gritting my teeth, I'm leaving it in. But let's, let's really press in there. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him, not because he was tall in parentheses. For the Lord, you like how I do that? I just, whatever I need the word to say. For the Lord, does, I do it other places too. For the Lord does not see his, I actually do. For the Lord does not see as mortals see they look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. We'll read on for now. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, you guessed it, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and unlike the tall, wicked, cross-eyed people, David has beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord, the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. We, we could stop there. So for me, the key text really is Samuel, like anybody else, is still inclined to judge by outward appearance. But God says, don't look at the outward appearance. I don't judge by outward appearance. I look at the heart. I see the heart. And for me, I think one of the things that's most extraordinary about this text is, at least the way my mind always worked, the idea that God sees past the outward appearance and sees into us, that never seemed like good news to me before. Because I always thought that, you know, 
God sees past my religious exterior where I'm trying my best to keep myself together and keep the rules. But really, deep down, he sees my, my, my deep rottenness. That's how God sees past the outward appearance, so that he can see the real evil that lurks un, uh, kind of underneath. And there's a reason, I think, that you know, we think like this. We hear a lot of this talk. Um, by the way, when I was growing up, they used to talk a lot about God like as the all-seeing eye. We had a hymn about this. I don't know if anybody remembers that hymn. There's an all-seeing eye watching over you, watching you. Like, I was never comforted by that song. <laughs> that sounds like the eye of Sauron to me. Like, are, are you really comforted by an image of God as a giant eyeball who knows everything that's going, it's all past, and that was always the idea, you know, like, God knows who you really are. God knows what you're really up to. God knows what you really want. You see, he knows what a dirty, rotten sinner that you are. And I love so much here that when the prophet receives the revelation, that God doesn't look on outward appearance, but looks at the heart, and he judges by the heart. You know, in this case with David, that turns out to be very good news. You know, it's not about seeing the vile underbelly. God sees the beauty in this person who's otherwise been neglected. God sees the beauty and the deep goodness of this man that no one else is able to see. And I think just the more and more I come to understand about uh, a life with God, I, I, I think that I'm understanding so much more that that's how the Spirit of God works, that that's how God sees, that's how love sees. I know this is a story about David and Saul. I know everybody doesn't get to be king like David, but I think that there's something fundamentally true. That like, this is just how God sees. And coming awake to a life with God is always about coming into alignment with how God sees. I mean, that's what spirituality is. That's what prayer is. It's not something that we do. It's a way of being in the world with God where our perspective is now being adapted and shaped to where we start to see the world and ourselves in the way that God does. That's why we have so many songs like Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Uh, we sung this morning about the day that will yet come when our faith will become sight. There's a reason why that metaphor comes up over and over again in Scripture. Faith is always a way of seeing, a way of seeing God, a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing ourselves. And that's why I think it's so important that we establish something of how God sees us, what God sees when he looks at us. Because if we are not able to come into alignment with how God sees us and how God sees the world, then, then our, we will never look at the world through grace-healed eyes, which is, I think, what often happens. So many times in the church, especially when we have this notion that the way that God sees us is he sees all the filthy rottenness at our core. Let me just take a couple moments to critique that, by the way. Like, we, we, we use this language often, right? We talk a lot in the church about original sin. And, you know, I, I get that. I have my own riff on original sin. I mean, I do believe that there are ways that we, all of us are deeply entangled in sin. Jeremiah talks about the ways that the heart is endlessly perverse. You know, I think all that's true. It's, it's just not the whole story. And I feel like so often the, the way that people read Scripture begins with Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1. People start with the fall rather than starting with creation. Before there is the first sin, there is a God who creates all people in his image, male and female, created in the image of God, and he blesses that creation, and he calls us good. He calls humanity good. There is an original blessing that is more original than original sin. Yes. Y'all tracking with me so far? The blessing is more original than the sin. 
the blessing is more native than the sin. We were created and designed in such a way to need God, to crave God, to walk with God. Like all of that is, is, is buried in us. We are created in the image of God. So when then, you know, I just don't believe personally, a lot of people use this language, and I want to get into a lot of theological things, but people talk about total depravity. I don't believe in total depravity I, I, because I don't think that that takes seriously the kind of inherent dignity that, it, that is transferred to us by being created in the image of God. We may be depraved, but we're not totally depraved. The image of God in us through our sin, through our own deceit and distortion it mars the image of God, but it does not eradicate it. We're not no longer creating it. We're still image bearers. We just do it in a fractured way. But that goodness, that beauty that we've been created in, that part's still intact. No wonder then that when people come to faith in Jesus, they so often describe it as they feel like they've come home, even though they've never known God before, because we're created to know God in this way. Something deep inside of us has always known this. Even when we didn't know what to call it, we knew we were created for something more. It's because we're created in the image of God. And the problem with total depravity, um, Luther had this lovely phrase that we're uh, basically in Christ that we are snow-covered dung. Isn't that a beautiful expression? <laughs> snow-covered dung. If, if you believe in total depravity, I think the problem there is it's, you know, so many things that are wrong with the world start with us not being able to see the image of God in these sons and daughters around us. When we don't see the people around us as being created fully in the image of God, it causes endless problems. And believe it or not, the problem always starts with not seeing ourselves as being created in the image of God. When we see ourselves as primarily dirty, filthy, rotten, wretched sinners... And then we get a lot of that language in the church again that like we're worms and we're this and that. Once again, I, I'm not saying we're not sinful. I know that we're sinful, but I, don't, I just don't think that whole thing of wretchedness tells the whole story about that. And then we get this, maybe this is another sermon for another time. Then I'll hear people preach sermons and talk about Jesus and the cross and they'll say things like, God, you know, God could not bear to look at you because you're such a filthy, disgusting, slimy worm. But thankfully, God is able to look at Jesus. And the only way that, you know, that you're safe is because you're kind of hiding behind Jesus. God would never look at you, you filthy scum, unless you're able to hide behind Jesus. And I just, I just think all that is so terrible. If there's anything the life and ministry of Jesus should tell us is that Jesus looks everyone eyeball to eyeball, yes. sees them as created in the image of God. Like people are not. The way that Jesus looks at us is how God sees us. The, the way that love looks at us is the only truthful way of seeing. I, I don't know if that's setting in at all. The way that love looks at us is the only truthful way of seeing. That, kind of, that way of looking at a person, seeing the beauty that's buried beneath, like that's the only real way of it. Grace, grace is the only thing that's real in that way. If we're not looking at the world through a lens of mercy and grace, we're not seeing what's actual. We're not seeing what God sees. Um, so the way I think of it these days, for example, is that even though we're all very familiar with sin and we're all very familiar with our own brokenness, right? It, yes, all of that stuff runs really, really deep, but I really do believe that sin is not native to us. And this will change everything, I think, for you if you come to believe this, that um, sin for us is the unnatural thing. 
that buries up, that covers up the real. Sin is the unnatural thing that covers up who we really are and who we're really intended to be. So what God does when he begins to work redemptively in our lives, it's not, yes, there's a kind of transformation that takes place, but what he's doing is he, the spirit is burrowing through all those layers of, of falseness. All these things that we have um, piled on to clutter and cover up the image of God in us. Jesus is now, is, is now pushing his way through all of that and clearing the path so that we can become the people that we've always been intended to become. This is why the gospel is good news. <laughs> because it's not primarily about you're filthy, dirty, rotten, whatever. You were created in the image of God. We are all marred and distorted by the fall, by our own sin. But God comes to us and he reveals to us the beauty that was always intended. And the thing that, that, that transforms then how we see the world is that we know that the spirit of God is relentlessly committed to seeing that beauty inside of us be fully shaped until we are made perfectly into the image of Christ Jesus. That day is coming, that when, that when we see him, we will be like him. We're not there yet, but it's, it's happening. Um, the day will come when God's kingdom will come. The day will come when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea, the way Isaiah talks about. We know that way is coming. This is what enables us to look at the world and to see people around us who are in really deep, dark places, to see people in all levels of distortion and pain and hurt and violence and still be able to see beauty and goodness underneath because we've got that long view yes. of what God's doing. We, we know that God is so relentlessly committed to restore the whole creation and because God is not done restoring, you're not done, you're not finished. The people around us, they don't seem to be making any progress at all. God's not done working in them and man, I'm going all around the world to make some very large points about something or another. I don't even know where I am. But St. Francis, I'm going to St. Francis, yes. There's, <laughs> these are these very Pentecostal sermons that I do, Ed. They're so much like, it's so Pentecostal and crazy in that way. But this way of then like, of seeing the world through hope. So yes, my fundamental foundational illustration for this sermon really is I love this story about St. Francis. And I don't know how many of you read about St. Francis. I just think these stories are awesome. You might think some of them sound cheesy or lame. I think they're brilliant, and I believe them personally. But you have these great stories. You know, Francis, you know, God talks to him through animals and all this stuff that I think is so great. Um, but my, one of my favorite stories, and it's a small one, but there's a story about how Francis one day sees this almond tree, and it's in winter, so, you know, the buds are all... Uh, shriveled up and the, and the tree just looks very dry and all of that. And when he sees the tree, he asks the tree the question. Just work with me here. He asks the tree, tell me about God. Show me, show me God. And in a moment, then Francis sees this vision of the tree in full bloom where he can see all, all the almond blossoms and it's just gorgeous. And he's able to see this even though it's not in season, even though to the physical eye, uh, you know, that it's, it's, it's not available. You, he's not able to see the, the buds. He's not able to see the blossoms. And yet in that moment, that comes to be. I really think this is such a picture for us of, of, of what this kind of spiritual grace-healed seeing really looks like, is we're able to see the tree while it is still withered, while it is still dried up, while it's still completely unimpressive. But instead of looking on outward appearances, we're able to see the heart. We're able to see the potential. We're able to see the possibility. We're able to see the tree as it was intended to be and one day yet will become. 
we're able to see that. And so long as we don't see that, so long as we become, I know I've talked about this here before, but this is just so heavy on my heart these days. I just think that like, it doesn't take any creativity. It doesn't take imagination. It doesn't take prayer. It doesn't take the spirit to just point out what's wrong with the world. Anybody can do that, which is why I'm so unimpressed with Christian ministries that just relentlessly remind us that the world is a terrible place. Yeah, right. I know there's great, great brokenness, right? But it doesn't take eyes of the spirit to see that. Brokenness is fairly conspicuous. And I'm going to tell you something about all of us. Any one of us, if you get around us long enough and close enough, you will see our brokenness. Come spend a few days with me and you will find out. You're like, oh, we, he's really funny at church. I like it. You will see my brokenness fast if we have two or three days to really live some life together. This is just, this is just how we are. That doesn't take the spirit to see. But what does require the spirit, what does require a kind of spirit-formed imagination, what does require grace-healed eyes is to be able to see people who are in very broken places and to see them for what they yet will become, to see what God is doing, and, and, and to see it in a way that, um, that, that is real and actual. Even though we know it's not realized, we're able to have some vision of where this is going. That's how God sees the world. That's how God sees us. And I cannot stress this enough. So long as you're not able to see yourself through those eyes, there's almost no potential that you'll ever be able to see the world through God's eyes. Um, I'm not trying to play the psychotherapist here, but it's just what I really believe. Folks who are always harping on everything in the world that is ugly, fundamentally, it always is true. They have a very ugly view of themselves. It's that they don't know how to, for, they don't know how to let God love them in their own broken places, which is why they're so hung up on everybody's brokenness. So long as when you look in the mirror, you primarily see all of your distortion and flaws, then you'll see the world through that same lens. But when you allow God to love you in your broken places, to acknowledge those things are real, because y'all know I'm about not walking in denial. Yes, we see these things for what they are, but we also see what God is doing, what God is shaping. We see the beauty underneath. We, we see the, the becoming, however slow, and, and we trust. What if the call of the church then, the call of God's people in the world, is not to point out people's secret sin, which once again is kind of easy to do. Sin is never, maybe that's another thing. I don't know why I'm pushing back on this language today. I understand what people mean when they say original sin, but please understand this. Sin is never original. Anyone want to say amen? Sin is never creative. There are only so many different ways you can do it, and sin is horribly predictable, you know? Goodness is much more unpredictable than sin. People are fundamentally broken in the same handful of ways, and they acted out in the same handful of ways. So no sin is really all that original or creative. It's just not. It's not that interesting, which is what's weird about us being so captivated by everybody's sin. That's never the interesting part of the story. I'm just feeling this right now. There's just not, it's just, it's just not that compelling. And, and yet, it, it, what, what if our call then, again, not to, to point out people's secret sin, but to see their secret beauty? What if that's what God's people do, is see the secret beauty? So instead of going around being the sin detectors, we're the beauty detectors, you know? Like instead of being the people who are like hypersensitive to it, it, you know, we're quick to slice and dice everybody and critique them and diagnose them and figure out what's wrong and if they just do this and that and the other. We're able to see the secret beauty that's buried beneath the rubble. 
and able, therefore, to see as God sees. There's a, one of my favorite quotes. I used to have this up in my office. Uh, Thomas Merton, the famous monk, has this great story of going downtown in Louisville, Kentucky, and having this epiphany, which he describes as being the great revelation of his life and ministry. And I love this, this quote so much. Merton says, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. And this is my favorite part. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach. The core of their reality, the person that each on his, are in God's own eyes, if only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. Isn't that beautiful? The secret beauty. <laughs> to be able to see what's in the heart that sin and desire and distortion cannot touch. To see the goodness that's buried beneath. I believe that the way that God sees David here gives us a template for how we are to see the world and how we are to gauge the world and the people around us. How, again, we are to see ourselves. And one of the things I love most about this is that when we really believe that people are created in God's image in this way, again, even if it's distorted, created in the image of God in a way that's fundamentally beautiful, then we can see them act against that. We can be disappointed at times. We can see all the ways that you know, they may not be living up to that. And we can have the patience to believe in the long, in the long, slow, I make up works all the time preaching, in the long, slow work of the Spirit, that we, we, see the, we see the over, we see the big picture, we see where this is going, and enables us to be patient when nothing seems to be changing on the exterior. And to believe, you know, I, I very rarely use more than one lectionary text, but um, I love this Old Testament reading, and then I love the gospel reading from today, and it's, it's fairly short. I want to share that with you from Mark. This, to me, in context of the Samuel reading, is just remarkable. Uh, Jesus says in, Matthew, in uh, Mark 4, beginning verse 29, but when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with the sickle because the harvest had come. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds in the earth. Now think about that. The kingdom of God is like the mustard seed. It is the smallest of seeds, the most unimpressive, the most... Um, unobtrusive. You see the seed, you are not impressed. This tiny, tiny seed. This is what the kingdom is like, Jesus says. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but explained everything in private to his disciples. And we could stop right there. I love this, this then as an image of the kingdom, as this small, tiny seed. But like we, in the way that St. Francis does, we're able to see the tree. We're able to see the seed for what it is going to become. It's not there yet, 
It's not realized yet. But we, we, we trust in the slow work of God. I just like so often what keeps us as, uh, as the body of Christ from engaging the world in so many constructive areas is that change of any sort is so slow. It takes so long. I loved when Paul this morning, uh, the, the, the prayer um, today about McKinney, I mean, all of that's so heavy on my heart. And I just think, you know, we see the brokenness in the world and it's so depressing because it really does feel like sometimes what good could it possibly do if you get up in the morning and you pray for one of these situations, if you do something in Tulsa or within Sanctuary Church to volunteer, what can a handful of small acts of kindness, of mercy, of justice, of generosity, how can that possibly bear up against just what seems like an avalanche of, of evil, of injustice, of, of brokenness? It, it's so easy to be overwhelmed by that. And yet to become kingdom people, is to become people who are able to see the way that God sees and able to see that like in these small acts of mercy, the, the, the kingdom is being built. The kingdom is, is, is growing up. If we can catch a glimpse for what these small things mean and what they gesture towards, the, the reality that this, that this faces, you know, that God is gonna continue this work that he starts until this beauty is, is fully blossomed and fully realized within the world, that changes everything. It, it gives us the sense that it's okay for things to move slow. It's okay to be patient with ourselves. It's okay to be patient with the people around us, to not see a great deal of progress and yet to still be able to trust. Um, I find myself saying this a lot to people. There's a frame song I always think of when I say this actually, but I, I've told some folks lately about how like in Christ, we really do have all the time in the world. And I, and I just, I believe that to be true. Not that there's not ever a kind of um, urgency but I think like in the grand scheme of kingdom come and the work that God is doing throughout time and space, y'all, I just think for people that believe in, I could get more Southern the more I go here for some reason. The, for people who really do believe in eternal life, you know, I think this is the only way that we can stay sane with some of these things is just believing that God is doing this over the long haul. So we can serve people who are really broken and not feel like a, 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 a real overt, showy distance or difference is being made in some regard, and be okay with that, because we're trusting that over the long haul, it's gonna matter. We've got time. We really do. We have time. That's what, this, this is where and how um, Christians, I think, uniquely are postured to be with people who are in very, very broken places and not give up, because again, we don't believe that God is giving up. There is, there is time. I, wonder, I didn't plan to do this before, but I really did just feel like somehow um, a little earlier that I needed to share this before we close. There's a, um, a, a poem, essentially, that uh, Teilhard de Chardin wrote that I love, and I've been meditating on this every day personally because it's just you know, speaking to where I am. But it's called Trust in the Slow Work of God, and I want to share that with you, and we'll close. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We're impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually, let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them as though you could be today 
what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Stand with me if you would. Trust in the slow work of God. Just before we come to the Lord's table, I really just wanted to pray a a prayer for us. I want to invite you into, um, in whatever way this resonates in your own heart. Um, I just think it would be an interesting experiment for us to explicitly ask God this morning to heal our seeing. Because what I know is that so long as we're on this side of the resurrection that's yet coming, you know, uh, so long as we're on this side of being face-to-face with Jesus, as Paul says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we see through a glass darkly. So right now we know that even the most mature of us in Christ in the room have, have a very limited perspective. Every single one of us still need our eyes to be healed. Every single one of us still have ways that we're seeing ourselves, seeing the world around us that are still distorted in some way. And to ask God by his grace to heal our eyes, to open understanding. I'll ask you if this doesn't just sound too flaky, um, to actually lay hands on your eyes this morning. And that's how I want us to pray. God. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.